0: we
1: With your host, DJ Rome. are back. KCWG, thetruth.com. This program's called Psychotic Bump School. My name is DJ Rome, and I am very excited to have back for 2020 one of my favorite marriage and family therapist couple. Y'all know these two. They are historic in their appearances on this program. They've been here multiple times before, and I'm so happy that they are here once again for the new decade and 2020 in particular. So ladies and gentlemen, please welcome back to Psychotic Bump School, the good brother, Mr. Art Harris, and his wonderful wife, Mrs. Narissa. This is Harris. Harris's, are you in the house? Hi, Hi we are
2: hey. here. Thank you
1: for that introduction. Happy New Year. Yeah, Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you both. I'm glad to see y'all made it over. Now, in what ways was this New Year's Eve different from, say, last year going into 2020? Uh, can either of you articulate, now that your parents, how this New Year and decade looks to the both of you? <laughs> well, <laughs> it was a little quieter with having a newborn baby yes. um,
3: in the house, you know, we, well, I mean, right, we didn't go out for one of those prefixed New Year's Eve mm-hmm. um, meals where they charge you an arm and a leg for the regular stuff. This year was all in-house yeah. with the baby, yeah.
4: I know, last, yeah. last, last New Year's Eve, I get my years and stuff mixed up, but, on the eve of 2019, um, we went out, but I was pregnant. I was like uh-huh. eight and a half months pregnant. So it was yes. still kind of slow. So we just I- continuing in that trajectory.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm telling you. Well, it sounds like y'all just basically lay low and uh, kept the faith. Uh, pun intended, right? (laughs) I I, I just made that up. I didn't plan that, but you can probably tell by how flat that joke just landed. But anyway, I'm glad all three of y'all made it safely across. Welcome aboard and happy new decade to all three of y'all. Well,
4: thank
0: you're
1: you very welcome. I'm always excited to have y'all here because we've we've had some uh, very robust conversations with Art and Arissa Harris. By the way, if I didn't say it at the top, ladies and gentlemen, Art and Arissa Harris are both married, licensed marriage and family therapist, and the good brother, Mr. Art Harris, is also a school psychologist. So this couple ain't playing. They are black power love at its finest and highest order. And we get a lot of wisdom and insight whenever the both of them are here with us. So I wanted to bring them in tonight because there's been a discussion in the media amongst mental health professionals. So let me break this down a little bit. I have been seeing the discussions between two distinguished psychiatrists, um, Dr. Bandy Lee, as well as Amy Bornhurst. I think that's how you pronounce her name. Uh, Dr. Lee is out of Yale, and Dr. Bornhurst is out of, and I'm going to have to look up the pronunciation of that, of that name, but she's out of UC Davis. And this has <laughs> started when Dr. Lee has made a lot of um, declarations on her Twitter account speaking out in favor of a mental health hold for this current president, given his dangerous policies, his dangerous uh, maneuvers, his comments, his projection, his uh, bullying of others through tweets and through his policies and through his daily comments. And well, um, somebody, you know, predictably from the other side, if you will. Uh, doesn't think that's a good idea for a psychiatrist to be out publicly declaring for the uh, mental health evaluation of someone that she hasn't personally sat in front of. So it is considered taboo to a certain extent for mental health professionals to right. uh, assess people from distance, right, Art? And so. Right, right. That's
3: really not a part of what we've traditionally done.
1: Absolutely. So I wanted to have a discussion because we have had the pleasure and the good fortune to have contact with a lot of mental health professionals on this program, and we have two of them right here. And so what did y'all think about this discussion that's happening online regarding the uh, the mental health of this, of this current president in office right now? Uh, can we hear first from Narissa Harris on that and swing over to her husband, Mr. Art Harris. Mrs. Harris, what were your thoughts on this?
4: So um, my thoughts... I think the first thing, you know, as a as a black woman and a black woman in this profession, the first thing I thought when reading this is this is the epitome of white privilege, mm. and I do I do understand the taboo piece of like not assessing someone from a distance, right. but at the same time, there are some really good points in the article just about, you know the danger that he poses to the American citizens and, you know, to society, just kind of the impulsive way that he engages, um, like on Twitter or how he kind of talks about reporters and things like that. Mm -hmm. And I kind of just felt like, I get their names confused, but the psychiatrist that is um, kind of against it I I feel as though that's just kind of like, again, this epitome of white privilege, because I just wonder if this was Obama acting like this, which we know, we know he wouldn't be acting like that. He got too much class, too much poise, and he's too intelligent. Come on. But let's just say that this was him. Would Mm -hmm. we be saying all of this and giving all these counters? No, it would be kind of like flipped around that he is a threat to society. He is mentally unstable and we really wouldn't be having a conversation about this, I but I just feel like since this is this white man, you know, with money and privilege, right. it's like, well, no, no, no. Let's just throw our degrees and our letters around and our credentials and kind of get into the, the technicalities of saying, well, we, you can't do that ethically and legally Right. When we know it's a lot of stuff that clinicians shouldn't do ethically and legally, which is not for the betterment of society. Mm. We're just keeping it real. No, absolutely. So that's kind of like my, the short version. Well, but you know, I can talk forever. <laughs> I, don't mind.
1: I don't mind one bit because you are right on point. Uh, Mr. Harris, I'm coming to you in just a second. Uh, that psychiatrist out of UC Davis is Amy Barnhorst. I think I had it similar, okay. right? but uh, Dr. Barnhorse is the one you're talking about who's kind of against it. So before we hear Mm -hmm. from Art, uh, you mentioned what if Obama, and of course, that's one of the first mantras that kept running through my head. What if this were the previous president, Barack Obama? Mm -hmm. Now, um, and Art, you can chime in on this too, but Narissa, what if she were a woman? If we were talking about a woman, uh, regardless of Mm -hmm. our race, uh, to what degree would that person, if it were a female, be afforded this type of leeway when it comes to the behavior? and the validity of whether or not it's appropriate to assess their mental health.
4: Oh God. I don't think as a woman, she would be afforded any leeway. You know, I think the instant thing would be, you know, she's emotional or she's acting out of, you know, (laughs) hormones, you know, it would be all this stuff that would come out and, you know, where a lot of people in society make try try to make everything about women and their hormones you know women and you know their emotions Mm -hmm. and if we just being blunt on the show you know oh it must be the little monthly visitor that's why she's acting like that when a lot of times women are just being assertive right so now we have to be emotional and we have to be hormonal Mm -hmm. or we have to be going through the change because we're asserting ourselves right um so i think if this was a woman it would be no leeway at all it just would be you know, maybe she's just too emotional to handle this this position. It, I think it would just be a completely different different look um, if there was a woman in
1: office. Absolutely, great points, Mr. Art Harris.
3: Right. Um, one thing I'll say, piggying back, if it was a woman or um, if it was the former president Barack Obama, mm-hmm. you see, most people and most presidents in this position have had enough tact and class to where we haven't had enough um, of their symptoms to look at, to try to diagnose, or to try to talk about, to try to figure it out. Most everybody got problems. True. It, I, you know what? As a clinician, both as a therapist and as a school psychologist, I've come to the point where I realized you could diagnose almost anybody with something um, from, from our assessments or from, our um, DSM-5 or just knowing what's right or wrong or crazy or ill, whatever you want to call it. That's right. But most presidents, they carry themselves with so much tact and class and people who are probably worse than Trump, they carry themselves real private where
1: you don't see all those symptoms. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's mm-hmm. right. So what then do we do as professionals? Because not only are we professionals Art in ERISA, but we're also... Um, we're black. <laughs> I don't even know why yeah, I'm not Right, we're, about black. It, but <laughs> we're black. We're black <laughs> mental health professionals, and we see this <laughs> kind of impact on a daily basis. I'm very interested in politics, Art and Arissa, so I watch this stuff every day. I watch this guy's behavior every day. And so I have mm-hmm. to say, uh, not that Dr. Barnhorst didn't have some good points to make, but it, it's kind of hard for me not to have an uh, empathetic ear to Dr. Lee because mm-hmm. while Dr. Barnhorst makes a point about the appropriateness and, you know, you don't want to go around just uh, castigating aspersions on someone just because they disagree with you politically. Dr. Lee makes a great point, too, because there is right and wrong and there is common sense. And sometimes with a certain side of politics, hint, hint, uh, those two things are sorely lacking. And they tend to discredit those voices that have sort of a normalizing effect. And th- that's something that this country is trying to uh, aspire for with this upcoming election in uh, a few months in November. So I guess my question is to both of you who see clients on a day-to-day basis, whether at in the, in the school systems or in your private practice, because both of these uh, professionals, ladies and gentlemen, have private practices, and you have to send the kids out of the room when this president speaks. I mean, talk to me about the, just from from our perspective, from the, the Black mental health perspective and just the, the within the realm of common sense, how are we to, what is our responsibility knowing that we do have some somewhat clearly defined limits as to evaluating for a mental health hold? However, what then is our responsibility in terms of reassuring our clients who are stressed by what they're seeing in our politics that they have a right to their feelings of anxiety, frustration, anger. uh, How would we help them navigate those waters? Let's go to Art Harris on that and then swing back to Miss Narissa Harris.
3: Yeah, these these are um, difficult cases because um, I, I believe I shouldn't give anybody a clinical diagnosis off of what I see in the media or on TV. But I can say, man, that looks a lot like crazy. That looks a lot like um, narcissism. That looks a lot like um, bipolar. It looks a lot like um, personality disorders, whatever you want to call it. And so, but our people um, that we treat, I mean, they're humans also. You don't have to spend um, four to 10 years, however long you spend on your degrees in college to know um, when somebody having a mental health breakdown or a mental health issue, and our kids, they're called straight up. Said, "Man, Trump is crazy. Trump's a racist. Trump, um, this uh chauvinist." These are kids, and people are paranoid to what might happen in this nuclear issue with Iran, or what happens if he makes these um, North Koreans a little bit too upset. If he keeps pushing them, that people aren't scared about what will happen, and right. all I can do is try to educate on how the systems of checks and balances are supposed to work Mm -hmm. but at the same time i try to do my mental health work on managing the symptoms and manage the things you can't you can't control because the media is just selling things to our fear or to our pleasure it you know it doesn't always have to mean something will happen
1: Absolutely. Well, before I go to Narissa, uh, Art, can you zoom in a little bit more on that? What What's an example of one or two things that we can control while we filter out all the uh, other distractions?
3: Well, um, you can control whether or not you go vote. We get a lot of people who um, just don't go vote because they don't think they could play a part. But another thing you can do is really work on your um, stress management or. Those negative thoughts racing through your heads, you can you know use positive self talk you can do some deep breathing, you can not yes. rationalize irrational behavior you you have to remind yourself that there are systems in place to keep him from getting out of hand by mm-hmm. evidenced by this impeachment that's right, yeah. you know they was going through an impeachment trial because of this behavior, and I saw a poll on um I think it was CNN today that said fifty one percent of Americans who took that poll wants him removed from office and convicted. That's
1: right. That's right. Absolutely. Great point. So, so you have to, have to remind you yourself know. of these realities. Absolutely. And reminding yourself of the things that you can control. that That's very empowering. I agree with you 1000%. Narissa Harris.
4: Mm-hmm. Well, in, in terms of how we help these clients um, that are coming in and kind of dealing with this stuff, You know, I I look at it from two different lenses, because, you know, um, I do a little bit of workshops and stuff on cultural awareness. And so in those settings, there's a bunch of different perspectives in the room. And then there's tension that shows up in the room also. And so I think it's really important for everybody to just kind of, like my husband is saying, realize what they can control. And then as a mental health professional in the setting, I think sometimes we slip into being kind of like sugarcoating, so to speak. And sometimes we just have to name what it is. You know, like yeah. artist is saying his students, these are kids and babies that realize that this man is crazy. And so sometimes just kind of naming, like we have a president in office that has began to stir up cultural tensions that haven't not been here, but they have been kind of beneath the surface and now they are rising up. And just naming that, like in right. these cultural settings. And then also for the individual work um, that I've done, I I feel like kind of the same thing is just really sitting with the client and their perspective and their fears and concerns um, and kind of normalizing the fact that, hey, this is scary times, but also not normalizing it to the point of heightening heightening. Their anxiety even more, um, but again, like my husband is saying, to you know let them know things that they are in control of
1: and in power of do we have a responsibility to continue to try to convert people back over to us in terms of i mean i 'm leaning and dipping into the realm of politics here, and i 'm trying to stay in a mental health frame with this, but see that that's the that's the dichotomy that's that hard. I am with. It's hard, yeah. you know, and I, I'm yeah. trying to stay neutral with this so that when people come in with that, yeah. about being deported or the, the immigration reform, yeah. being, you know, separated from their families and not knowing if ISIS coming to knock on their doors. I mean, this is real stuff. Right. You know, you so, know, why
3: it's hard
1: um, yes. to separate it? It is mm-hmm.
3: because um, you, you got to remember, when you go back to ancient Kemet, ancient Egypt, they didn't separate religion, spirituality, politics and mental health it was all really one flow yes. with different components of it and so we the reason they want to separate um all of these things is so we can't hit it off with all the power and all the thoughts that we need to because right now we're talking about mental health and politics and it's a natural flow yes we should be aware of the mental health of our um of our um politics and And because they play on our mental health, like you said, um, Mm -hmm. some black people, some black males are starting to pull for Trump. But I think that information might be jaded. It might. It it sounds like propaganda Mm -hmm. that um, I know I was never interviewed. I never took a poll. I don't know anybody else who has took a poll. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, they get this information from certain people and certain demographics to try to skew our opinion a certain way they it's like a mind game that they're playing that's why we have to be aware of the mental health of these politicians and everybody involved because they're paying
1: attention to our mental health and our psychological traits and behaviors they sure are they sure are yeah 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 and arisa when we look at the income disparity in the country i mean Art's talking about polling. He's absolutely right. I mean, who are they polling to get that, that data and that information? Exactly. So we know from the last election that a lot of foreign interference came in and had a major impact on how the election ultimately turned out. And mm-hmm. that alone, the, the fact that they're suppressing our votes, they're purging voters from the, 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 the rosters in all of those battleground states, such as Wisconsin and uh, North Carolina, with targeted precision. They're trying to limit our votes. So it, it begins to look more and more in Arisa like maintaining that optimism that we actually do have a fighting chance. And you know, and I, and I want to keep in mind what Art said about focusing on what we can't control. But at the same mm-hmm. time, look at all of these, these dooming and damning, um, efforts that they're undertaking in order to stay in power. I mean, they, by any means necessary, they're trying to choke mm-hmm. the life out of our aspirations to even play on a, a level playing field. So I guess right. my question, Harris, is how in the heck do we contend with that as mental health providers that are African American? How in the world do we compete with that?
4: Man, I think you know. I think it's all about. I don't. I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to put this in an articulate way. I think it's about the fact of. Realizing that we actually have more power than we think that we have because the way society tries to make us feel like we don't have power. And like you just said, they are doing everything that they can do to keep their power. And you don't just see that behavior in the White House with this white man that's trying to, you know, call himself running the country, but you see that with every day white people doing all that they can do to try to keep their power, even when they're not in a position of power and they need to stay in their lane. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I think for us, I think we have to, I mean, quite frankly, just, you know, depending on the setting, it depends on the level of education and intellect you bring to the environment, but you have to start checking people and letting people know that, um, you know, Hey, this is not your lane. (laughs) You are not, you know able to do this and just kind of step up and show that you actually have the ability you have the intellect you have the intelligence because society will really make us believe that we are not able to stand together as one um, come together as a community um, and do what we need to do but if we look back in the civil rights days they didn't have nowhere near as much like technology and leeway that we have now. And look at all the different moves that they made. And so if we keep that mindset, it wasn't that long ago, you know? And so if we can just keep that mindset, we can continue to, you know, build ourselves up, build our people up, um, and just educate yourself, especially in regards to mental health. Cause you know, as black practitioners, or should I say providers, we are taught this European way of practicing, but there's so many Afrocentric ways that are evidence-based out there that work, that we need to like, you know, um, educate ourselves on.
1: That's right, that's right. Well, that's why I love having y'all here. And we're definitely gonna be coming back to this topic uh, throughout the year and very soon. Um, I wanna thank y'all for being here. Uh before I let you go, I will be remiss if I didn't at least ask you uh, did you have a chance to go to that event that Art Harris uh texted me about? Uh the black psychology what was that, Art Harris, that was happening this past weekend? Did you hear anything about it?
3: Well oh um oh yeah, every third Saturday of the month we have the Bay Area chapter of black psychologists meeting. So we're part of ABCI, which is the National Association of Black Psychologists. And you don't have to be a psychologist or a therapist to um, be a member. You just have to be engaged in the healing of the black community or have a desire to get in and help the black community. We got teachers, we got drummers, we got nurses, we got artists, dancers. Um but, but yeah, we went and it was it was pretty good. We don't have enough time to jump into it, but I tell you a little sample of the funk. Yes. We talked about the Harriet Tubman movie movie mm. and um there was some debate that if the lead actress may be descendants of people in West Africa that benefit from the slave trade. It is a possibility that the actress playing Harriet Tubman family possibly put Harriet Tubman in slavery, which would be a complete wow. disrespect to Harriet Tubman and all black people from the diaspora. And so, mm. yeah, that's just a sample of the type of stuff we talk
1: about. <laughs> Narissa Harris, what is the best way for folks to access your services and to keep in touch with your work?
4: Well, Rome, we told you you'd be the first to know. Come on. So,
1: <laughs> the way that people
4: can contact us is through our new corporation, Culture First Family Therapy and Training Services. Uh-oh. And they can um, come to our website, which is culturefirst.org. And first is like the number, the number one ST
1: okay
4: and um that's our website so that's where they can find both of us at
1: oh that's what's up so i know um art i'm, I'm coming to you in a second but you had your bloom into your your beautiful self
4: oh yes uh,
1: so yeah sorry bloom into that? no 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 it's okay oh. because it might be two separate entities so is, is it one in the definitely. same definitely
4: it's not it's not quite one in the same it's like an umbrella but bloom into your best self um dot com is where people can find my writings so my newsletter, um, my podcast, um, they can just go on that on that website and find um, like the little individual things that I do in regards to my writing
1: and the cultural awareness uh, yes. podcast and stuff. That Fabulous. Thank you, Narissa Harris and the good brother, Art Harris. Yeah.
3: And again, through culturefirst.org, you can find um, me or my wife. But um, if you could find me on Instagram, it'll be at Blackmail Therapist, where you could get links to the podcast, the Blackmail Therapist podcast, or just um, information about our services in general. Because now we're moving towards training clinicians to deal with these issues of the community. It, that's really what it's about right now. We, I can't see everybody that wants to see a blackmail therapist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. it, it's not enough time. But we can train people to deal with these issues from a culturally sensitive sensitive place. And so that's where we're moving.
1: Oh, I love it. I love it. Y'all were talking about this before, and it's so exciting to finally, not finally, but to hear it up and running. It's it's like you put it out there, you planted that seed, and you, you took action and as if you were moving on faith (laughs) you took action action and it's a reality now so i'm so proud of y'all it's very inspiring uh will y'all come on back to psychotic bump school uh, later this year so we can continue this conversation
4: oh yes
1: no problem thank you for having us i know We uh, we love it yeah, love having y'all here too. Y'all are welcome here anytime. That is Art and Narissa Harris, licensed marriage and family therapist out of the Bay Area, y'all. This is KCWG, thetruth.com's program is called Psychotic Bump School. I'm DJ Rome. Stay tuned for more. We'll be right back.
5: This is music journalist A. Scott Galloway, and you're listening to Psychotic Bump School with your host, DJ Rome on KCWG, the, truth.com, the best internet radio station on the planet.
1: Back KCWG TheTruth.com. The name of this program is Psychotic Bump School. My name is DJ Rome. Oh, I'm very, very excited to have this next guest on. You guys know this good brother, legendary urban music journalist. In fact, we got a whole lot of them on the show this evening. Uh, he's been here multiple times before, and I am so proud that he's here to help us pay tribute to one of the fallen legends in rock and roll drumming. So, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome back to Psychotic Bump School the good brother, Mr. A. Scott Galloway. Mr. Galloway, are you there?
5: Good evening, my brother, and happy
1: new year. Happy 2020. How in the world are you doing this decade? 2020, my brother. Remember back in 1999 when it was about to turn to 2000, everybody was all scared. How scared were you uh, when 2019 was about to end, my brother?
5: (laughs) Yeah, I think I just rolled over and, and, uh, you know, (laughs) went right to bed, man. It, It wasn't anything for me, man. I mean, you know, Stevie Wonder says superstition ain't the way.
1: Ooh, come on now. Hey, well, I'm proud to say that you made it over, and uh, I did too. And uh, speaking of making it over, man, we just had another uh, quite noteworthy transition in the world of rock and roll. Um, Mr. Galloway, you've been here multiple times and helped us pay tribute to many people, man. Uh, None of them, in in no particular order, you know, I'll, I'll just start with the drummers, man uh, Leon Ndugu Chancellor. I mean, you helped Mm. us break it down with him. Oh my God. And then, uh, Jabo Starks from James Brown's band, you know, two, I mean, true ambassadors of the instrument. You know what I'm saying? You helped us put it down with, with those two cats. And now we just lost another one, man, in the world of rock and roll of the rock group Rush, ladies and gentlemen, uh, had a famous songwriter, drummer, known more for his drumming than anything, uh, Neil Peart, just recently passed away, Mr. A. Scott Galloway. And uh, I was very fascinated. Actually, that's not even the right word. I was surprised at the, the resonance of the, the news when it broke, Scott. And it's, it, we're probably about a week out from his passing now, right? It's been a few days. Yeah, yeah, past, yeah. But I was surprised. About a people, week. Yeah, and I was surprised that people that don't normally post anything about music, they were posting about him. You know what I'm saying? And people I wouldn't associate with. Oh, you like Rush or you like Kim? So in all honesty, man, it's like I, I've known about this band for years, but I'm not that intimately familiar with the, the band. But there, there's something to be said about just musical talent. Mr. A. Scott Galloway, can you break down the, uh, the gravity of this loss? What was the life and talent of Neil Peart? What did it mean to the world of music? Mr. A. Scott Galloway?
5: I think that the story of of Neil Peart resonated with a, a, a lot of folks uh because it went beyond his mastery of music which in and of itself was just remarkable. I mean, you know, he he wasn't even the original drummer for the band. We'll start mm-hmm. with that and then I'll go into the more personal things. You know, he came in on their second album in the uh, mid 70s and and became a force within the band most people most rock bands or any band you know usually the uh the driving force is a guitar player or a lead singer something like that and uh you know in this particular band you know getty lee on bass and mr um oh my goodness jerry leafson on uh, guitar uh just you know they they were amazing musicians but they were not necessarily songwriters. And what uh, Neil Peart brought to the group beyond, you know, an amazing facility for playing drums was a very uh, literature-heavy, mystical, introspective kind of approach to lyrics and songwriting. And, uh, you know, his his works were, were epic as far as that was concerned. And it was rare for you to ever have a drummer be in the band that was the primary lyricist of that band as well and we're talking a power trio this is just three cats you know Mm. they never got you know uh any other members no extra keyboard player or 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 anything like that they always vowed to do everything themselves but um you know on the surface everybody knows that Neil Peart was uh you know an amazing drummer and um one of the things that drove him Was the fact that he was a perfectionist, and he was a very disciplined uh, musician. And you know, this brother practiced all the time. He was always searching to get better. That that search took him beyond rock into uh, because, interestingly, his first, you know, some of the influences that he uh, initially would uh, tell people about in the few rare interviews that he would do was, you know, he liked people like Keith Moon of the Who who was, you know, a wild man drummer, you know, somebody who was just kind of like, you know, uh, you know, had a lot of facility, but was also just a a madman, you know, just, you know, all over the kit. And, but that is so not what Neil turned out to be. You know, I think that's what brought him to drumming, but then, you know, he, like I said, he was very, very disciplined. and, And at one point he became very infatuated with jazz drumming and, uh, people like Buddy Rich and Gene Krupa and, uh, so here, once he got that under his belt, you had a drummer who could really, a rock drummer who could really swing. You know, he loved the feel of swing and added that to his music. And I don't think there's another rock drummer that could uh, swing as hard as Neil, except for potentially Alex Van Halen. Alex
1: Ooh, Van Halen. Wow, has been- dude, that's crazy. He has- I just wrote that name down. I was going to mention that name and get your thoughts on it, because I failed to mention that you actually most recently paid tribute with us uh, to the late Ginger Baker, who also yeah. pollinated genres and took the, the the art of drumming to another level. Uh, but you just mentioned Alex Van Halen. Talk to me more about that comparison that you mentioned there. And uh, how did Neil distinguish himself from drummers such as Ginger Baker and Alex Van Halen?
5: Well, Alex, you know, uh, I'm not off the top of my head. Uh, I don't remember what, you know, his training was or or if he listened to a lot of jazz. You know, now that I remember, I think their father, you know, uh, Alex Van Halen and Eddie Van Halen's father uh, played clarinet. And I think he, uh, as a clarinetist back in in the era when he was doing his thing, would certainly have been, you know, into swing uh, in, you know, probably the swing era of people like, you know, a Glenn Miller and Benny Goodman and and those type of people. So I'm sure there was some sort of a jazz background for them. But um, when I speak about Alex Van Halen, that's just from my own ears. You listen to something like Hot for Teacher or you listen to, Mm
6: -hmm. you know,
5: various other songs in their catalog. He has a very natural affinity for Swing in his approach to rock and ginger Baker you know he he did as well uh, he he loved jazz, you know, but he was a much harder hitter you know i don 't think he was as and he was an incredible drummer, do not get me wrong and and I think that the influence that that was more heavy on him was the influence directly of African rhythms as it was for neil as well uh, um, but um yeah, Ginger Ginger's approach to jazz was more like that of the powerhouse Elvin Jones, who, of course, was, you know, an, an amazing swinger. But he had a very hard, you know, uh, swing and, you know, just more of a ferocious energy that he brought to jazz. Uh, whereas, you know, some of the other jazz drummers, there was a a different level of, dare I say, finesse, you know, uh, in, in the way that they did things. Yeah. you know, I mean, you yeah, know, again, you know, all the greatest drummers, they they could do it all. I mean, Elvin is known for the power, but he could, he could lay back on some brushes and swing as well. Mm. But getting back to Neil, uh, you know, so, so Neil had, you know, a little bit of the same trajectory. He loved jazz. And then he also studied, you know, African uh, rhythms as, as well. And, uh, you know, he didn't uh, absorb it in the same way that Ginger did, i.e. going to Africa and living there. And, you know, getting African wife or, or, or any of that kind of stuff. You know, he just really studied those rhythms and uh, and also just the music of Africa in general. And one of the things that you'll see if you take a look at any of the amazing solos that uh, Ginger did, and and thankfully, you know, he he is very very well documented on uh, film and video. Uh, you know, he he has um, electronic devices. Uh, or you know, kind of uh, mallet, um, electronic mallet bars uh, on as part of his drum kit, where he will actually play melodic figures right in between playing rhythmic figures, and uh, he he was he was he was he was just outstanding man um, in his approach. And again, very disciplined, a lot of practice, very focused guy so which brings me to the the personal level uh, of what happened with Neil Peart you know uh, like I said he's also an amazing lyricist and when he was not on the road you know uh, with the band he was on the road on his motorcycle and and traveling and kind of writing introspectively about his thoughts his perspectives on life his life itself And unfortunately, Neil had, you know, a lot of, you know, a a heavy level of tragedy in his life. He lost his daughter uh, at one point and followed very shortly by, you know, his first wife. And uh, he had to deal with, you know, how he was going to handle that. Uh, I don't I'm sorry, I don't remember exactly how they how they perished, but it was, you know, it was obviously before their time and uh, and very tragic for him. Right. And, uh, and right. he had to he had to go on, and and he all, always kind of harbored some guilt about how much time he spent in the band and and uh, you know on the road away from his family. Mm-hmm. So there was there was a a bit of a tortured soul with Neil Peart as well. And this is the the level that that um, you know uh, a lot of fans gravitated towards because they could really see the humanity of of who this guy was. You know, so when you watched him doing these amazing drum solos and everything, and you knew about what he'd been through, and you'd actually read some of his books and and got into, you know, his thought processes about life and about surviving and moving forward and uh, what the purpose of everything is. Hey, man, you know, that... um, that just gives you a whole nother insight into somebody as opposed to just seeing somebody that you go, wow, he sure can play. And, and he, you know, he's fast and he's powerful and, and, and whatnot, you know, no, he was a a very independent thinker behind those drums. And he was a very introspective expresser of how he felt about things, you know? And the last thing I'll say, as far as, you know, when you went to go see Neil Peart perform you know and and again i have to say i'm not the biggest fan of the band rush you know i don't have a lot of their albums i think neil's lyrics kind of demanded a certain amount of attention that i never really gave to the band but you know it was demanded so if you weren't going to go there and really get into all the lyrical references and the stories you know that these albums were about which you know weren't you know well, yeah, you know, it's like I said, a lot of things about alienation and and uh, and and personal growth and uh, and and you know making your way in the world. But uh, you know the lyrics were the way they were written, were were quite deep. And there are certain folks out there that also would say that you know the lead singer and bassist Getty Lee's voice is an acquired taste. You know a lot of people just you know they don't like his voice. I don't have that problem, but I say all that to say that I didn't spend a lot of time uh, checking out that band, but I did go see them live once at the Microsoft Theater, and the reason I went was to see Neil, because as a drummer myself, I just felt like I had to, you know, witness this man in person, Mm. and uh, word had started getting out that he was experiencing some Arthritic issues, and, and uh you know that all that drumming and all the traveling had taken a toll on him, as it does with a lot of drummers. As a sidebar, I'll say that you know, like you, you can go see, like for instance, if Van Halen were to reunite this year or next year, and and do and give the fans the final tour that so many people, you know, have want to see. The hardest chair is the drummer. You know, Alex will have the hardest time being a senior citizen trying to hold down a two-hour rock show on the drums. It's physically demanding. So a lot of other bands like Judas Priest or any band you want to name that's been in the game for 20 years plus, the drum chair is usually one of the first chairs that changes. I mean, most guys just cannot, cannot, uh, you know, live up to playing on the level that they need to be playing on you know, for the long haul, especially in rock music, you know, jazz and other forms of music. Yes. But mm-hmm. rock, it's just really a, a punishing thing. So anyway, that's why I went to go see Neil and Rush again, being a three man band that only had the one band member change when Neil came in on the second album forward, they weren't going to, you know, if if anybody left the band, that was going to be it. Mm-hmm. So I went to see them when, when rumors started getting around that you know it was going to be Neil wasn't going to be staying with the band much longer, right. and I got to tell you um, the sheer theatrical level of what Neil brought to drumming. Uh, if you've seen any photos, he's he's had kits of anywhere from two drum kits to four drum kits that he played near simultaneously. When he had the four kits set up, he would actually stand up and go over to, I mean, they'd be in a circle around him and he would get up from one set and just, you know, kind of slide his stool over and start playing another one. And then he got to a point where he, you know, they came up with uh, an electronic rig for his platform and he would be playing one kit and then all he'd have to do is stand up. And, and the kids would rotate in front of him and then he would start playing and sit down and play the 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 next kid that was rolled around in front of him and people would lose their mind and then you know, his facility, his imagination, you know, his utilizing video aspects, he would, he would be playing rock drum patterns and have videos showing you the whole history of people just losing their mind to music, whether it was jazz music, African music, rock music, surf music whatever it was you know and he's just playing these incredible rhythms and kind of showing the universality of the way rhythm affects people and makes them feel his drum his drum sets themselves were were works of art you know and uh were just you, you know you could just go and uh and stare at his drum kit for a half hour and be thoroughly entertained just looking at the drums themselves so those are those are really all the things that I think made Neil Peart, you know, uh, just a an exceptional uh, one of a kind kind of musician because he happened to be in the rock world but he incorporated so many other facets of of uh music and lyric writing and you know really uh his personality, his life was invested in the way that he uh, approached his artistry man and, and that's why i will miss him so much but again um he was very very well documented so you can go on youtube and find all kinds of clips of him you know full concerts of rush and uh certainly a lot of uh edits where you can just go to one of the songs that leads into his drum solo For the night and and you can just be blown away by him uh night after night after night
1: absolutely this is psychotic bump school i'm dj rome and we're joined this evening by the incomparable mr a scott galloway breaking it down for the late great drummer of rush mr neil peart oh my goodness that was such a beautiful soliloquy there mr galloway you made me think about so much man i'm about to pick your brain man because uh i am not a drummer another full Mm -hmm. disclosure, but you are. And so you can appreciate this on a much more uh, deeply resonating level than I ever could. You mentioned a little while ago Keith Moon and how uh, people may carry them within the same conversation, like a Keith Moon, heavy hitters, right? Like Mad Men on the drums, like Ginger, mm-hmm. Keith Moon. Uh, I don't know if it's fair to put John Bonham in that, that, that category, but these are hitters. And you said a moment ago, oh, and the reason why I'm thinking about them is because you said the, the, the career span or the, the first seat, if there's gonna be some interchanging in the band, it's commonly the drummer that they'll switch out because of how demanding and physical uh, to hold down the drum in the group, hold down the drums in the group, it requires a
5: lot. Well, I, 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 w- I say that in the sense that particularly in, in bands that become uh, super famous and the drummer is, because there's a lot of rock bands where the drummer is not a focal point, but mm-hmm. you know, they have, you know, I mean, they, they can play, they do their gig and and whatever. I mean, certainly it's crazy, you know, when you look at The Who, you know, they went on mm-hmm. without, you know, Keith was the first one to pass away, as did John Bonham of of Led Zeppelin. Right. And with Led Zeppelin, you know, John Bonham was, you know, every bit as important as Robert Plant and or Jimmy Page for sure. Right. You know, I mean, I think most people um, would say that, you know, John Paul Jones, as amazing as he is as a bass player and keyboardist, was probably you know if he had passed first maybe led zeppelin would have still gone on they could have replaced him and 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 gone on but john was too much of a part of the band but i meant more in the sense of uh, you know like the scorpions or judas priest or acdc or any number of bands where the front person is basically like i said in the beginning you know the lead singer or the guitar player you know they got a drummer back there and uh and you know he's doing his gig but in most cases that guy is not going to be there you know after the band has been around for a certain number of years because the gig is too taxing that's yeah. what i meant so it really is a band-by-band basis some of the most right. legendary drummers if they were very crucial to the band then um yeah they're probably not even going to be replaced
1: absolutely well you yeah, i'm glad you clarified that because you also made me think about uh def leopard who has a drummer who uh, famously had an accident of some kind, and he's continued to play with the band after that accident, and even after the loss of one of his arms. And right. just looking at the the commitment that he had to just staying with the band and, and doing what he could. And speaking of John, uh, you talk about when the drummer is not necessarily, you know, they're they're an integral part of the band, obviously, but they may not be the center mm-hmm. or focal point. And you made me think about Bobby Z of uh, The Revolution, who I did see live like last year. And he might be someone who would fit that criteria. But another John came to mind as you were speaking, Mr. Galloway. And I'm surprised, why didn't we cover this drummer? Because I was certainly a fan. He passed away within the last two or three years. Maybe I didn't have a show on at the time. I don't remember. But do you remember the drummer, John Blackwell,
5: who played? Yeah, well, John John Blackwell was one of several drummers that Prince had. And, right and uh, and and you know i was i befriended john in the very last year of his life because he was trying to get a recording contract uh to record a jazz record and it was a very i mean the record was done he had chick career he had he had some really heavy stuff going on but um you know it was hard for him to get a deal because he you know he wasn't known in the field of jazz. He was a very great drummer, you know, exceptional, but he was trying to go from being, you know, that guy that played with Prince to, you know, having, you know, a jazz record, you know, with serious, you know, intricate jazz compositions. It wasn't smooth jazz or anything like that. You know, it was a real jazz fusion type of situation. Mm-hmm. But yeah, yeah, you know, uh, Prince had a number of drummers. Bobby Z being his original drummer, and and he gave Bobby one of the biggest compliments. You know, he said that, you know, Bobby it certainly is not one of the greatest drummers in the world, but he watches me like nobody else. And if you have ever seen a Prince concert, I mean, in the days of the Revolution, you know, uh, especially the early days of the Revolution. Prince's shows were very much like clockwork, but toward the end, uh, when he started having, uh, when Prince started having late shows and, you know, after parties and shows and all these kind of different things. And, uh, he started wanting to, uh, drop things in the mix spontaneously and, uh, and just, you know, do all sorts of stuff. And that's when Bobby was, uh, really showed the metal that, um, that Prince was looking for. He said, you know, he catches all of my cues. He doesn't miss anything. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I can count on him, you know, like it's my heartbeat, you know, something to to that effect, you know, but he eventually did want more flashy drummers. And of course, that's when we got Sheila E and we got Michael Bland and then we yes. got John Blackwell and, you know, he, he, he wanted some other things going on in that drum chair. So mm-hmm. yeah, it just goes to show you, I mean, there's a lot of different elements, that uh, a band leader looks for when it comes to drummers sometimes they just want somebody really solid that they can depend on and other times they they want the drummer to be somebody that you know they could all leave the stage and give him five ten minutes him or her you know five or ten minutes you know alone and they and they could hold it down or they can be flashy or they can do, do that sort of thing
2: This is David Mitchell, publisher of Music Industry Quarterly, and you're listening to Psychotic Bump School with your host DJ Rome on KCWGTheTruth.com, the best internet radio station on the planet.
6: Page me at 5.46 in the morning, crack dawn and now I'm yawning Wipe the cold out my eye See who's this page of me and why It's my man Pop from the barber shop. Told me he was in the gambling spot and heard the intricate plot Some people wanna stick me like flypaper, neighbor Slow down, love, please chill, drop the paper Remember all your peoples from the hill up in Brownsville That you wrote that sweet smoke yeah, little fame up in Prospect Nah, them my peoples Nah, love with and disrespect I didn't say them They schooled me to some chumps That you knew from back when When you was clocking minor figures Now they heard you blowing up like nitro And they wanna stick the knife Through your windpipe slow So thank fame for warning me Cause now I'm warning you I got the back, You Tell me what you gonna do Damn, why they wanna stick me for my paper? Damn, why they wanna stick me for my paper? Damn, why they wanna stick me for my paper? Damn, why they wanna stick me for my paper? They heard about the Rolexes and the Lexus With the Texas license plates out of state They heard about the pounds you got down in Georgetown And they heard you got half of Virginia locked down They even heard about the crib you bought your moms out in Florida Call the coroner It's gonna be a lot of slow singing And flower bringing If my burglar alarm starts ringing What you think all the guns is for? All-purpose war got the Rockwellers by the door And I feed them blood powder So they can devour The criminals trying to drop my decimals Damn People wanna stick me for my cream And it ain't a dream Things ain't always what it seems it's the one that smokes none with ya, see your picture Now they wanna grab their guns and come and get ya Bet your biggie won't slip I got the calico with the black talons loaded in the clip So I can rip through the ligaments Put their bodies in the bad predicament With all the foul people went Touch my check feel my beretta buck When I'ma hit you with your first reaction is the duck I bring pain, blood stains on what remains of his jacket He had the gun, he shoulda packed it Extra clips in my pocket, so I can reload and explode on your wall. I mess around and get hardcore, C4 to your door, no beef, no more. Feel the rough, scandalous. The more you smoke, I puff, the more dangerous. I don't give a damn about you or your weak crew. What you gonna do when Big Pop will come for you? I'm not running, chump, I bust my gun and hold on, I hear somebody coming.
1: Yes, we are back. Psychotic Bump School is the place where education and entertainment meet at the intersection of funk and soul. My name is DJ Rome and I am proud to welcome this next panel on the line right now. First up, I wanna welcome back a sister who y'all know very, very well. Y'all know this good sister. She puts it down over on Black Tree TV and she is an incredible, inimitable talent that I am always happy to have her grace the airwaves of this program. So ladies and gentlemen, please welcome back to Psychotic Bump School, the good sister Juliana J. Bowden, Miss Bowden, are you there?
0: Yes, I am absolutely here. I am here, and I am rocking out, rocking out, rocking celebrating out, rock celebrating hashtag Rock Hall twenty twenty.
1: Come on, watching
0: folks, Yes, watching folks just debate and Ooh. think about, try to act like they know who shoulda and who didn't, and she deserved and he didn't need to be there. Is that? Oh man, the the, the opinions are all over the place. Ask. Per
1: usual. Yes. Well, I, I definitely want to talk to you about that because I have something to say, or at least I have a perception on it anyway. But uh you brought somebody with you tonight and uh ladies and gentlemen, I'm really Yes, proud I did. Of you. I,
4: got you, you always, I
0: got friends.
1: You already got friends, got friends, and this isn't the first time you brought a hot guest along. So uh ladies and gentlemen, this guy is in the industry. He has an imitable and boundless amount of energy and knowledge and information on the industry that we all know and love. Uh, The good brother writes for Music Industry Quarterly. In fact, uh, he is the founding member of Music Industry Quarterly. And I wanna ask him about that as we get deeper into this conversation. And this is his first time joining this show. So ladies and gentlemen, please welcome for the very first time to Psychotic Bump School, the good brother, Mr. David Mitchell. Mr. Mitchell, are you there?
2: I am. I am here. Good, good evening.
1: Yes, sir. Yes, sir. How in the world? I I already got, I got fans,
2: friends, and followers, I see. Yes.
1: (laughs) And who knew? How about that? Well, Julianne and David, I am really happy to have y'all here. And uh, the reason why I wanted to have a conversation with two knowledgeably exceptional people like you, as if knowledgeably is even a word, but to have a conversation about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, you got to talk to people who really know something about music. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, we just had some recent announcements about some recent inductees into the coveted Rock and Roll Hall of Fame that was established way back in, oh, let's say the early 80s. I think uh, uh, David could probably help me out with this. Uh, I yeah, met that's, that's about right. Yeah, yeah I met Erdogan, uh, the legendary uh, record executive producer, I think or uh, at least manager, I think he was the one uh, who was a part of Atlantic Records back in the day. He was Mm -hmm. famous for being associated with the late, great Ray Charles, among many, many others. And I'm sure somewhere down the line, Aretha Franklin, if it's Atlantic Records. But uh, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is based in Cleveland, Ohio, ladies and gentlemen. And uh, each year, I think they bounce between both New York and uh, other cities as to where the ceremony itself is actually held and this year ladies and gentlemen they have some very fascinating inductees into the hall and i am not going to say much more other than that because juliana kind of spilled the tea already uh juliana Bowden, um i'm going to come to david first on this because i know you got a lot to say but uh Mm -hmm. let's ask mr mitchell uh mr mitchell given the the rank and the uh the caliber of inductees that are uh, really, renowned just to be nominated into the Hall of Fame, let alone let alone actually inducted. Uh, what can you tell us about your knowledge of the history of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction process, and what are your thoughts on this current roster that's on their way in right now? Can you talk to us about that a little bit, Mr. David Mitchell?
2: Well, from what I understand, and I, I, I'm not going to say I'm a great authority on how the process completely works, but from what I do understand, there are, you know, there are there is a committee. Uh, a rock hall committee and it's comprised of music industry experts. I'm sure that's probably past label heads, folks from radio, um, uh, music journalists. Uh, from what I understand, that's probably adds up to maybe about a thousand people in this committee. And then they also have fan voting, you know, uh, with the uh, advent of social media and all, uh, uh, you know, they get quite a few folks that want to, uh, uh, vote as far as fans usually every year they induct uh roughly between five and seven people I think it's just six this year that were actually named last year I believe it was seven I don't know why they stopped at such a low number especially since you know they they still have a lot of catching up to do
6: Mm
2: -hmm. and uh I'm sorry but you know it's it's interesting to uh try to figure out you know not just the process, but where it's all going, what, you know, what's actually the end game here, because, right. you know, they've also opened it up to include more pop artists. They've got to open it up to include hip hop artists.
1: Yes. You know,
2: it's, uh, uh, it's quite a process.
1: Right. And I have a feeling Juliana, based on what Mr. Mitchell just mentioned right there, that's probably got a little something to do with why people, or at least some of them anyway, are a little bit in their feelings about some of the inductees. So, uh, Juliana, um, before we go into the specifics, uh, what are your thoughts on this current class of inductees that are on their way to the coveted Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? It's Juliana Bowden?
0: Well, this year's uh, class of inductees, just like you know the prior years, is is pretty diverse. It represents a wide range of music styles that are related to rock, and I really feel. Um, I really feel heartened by a lot of the conversations that I see when somebody says, Oh, hey, why are they inducting notorious bigger Whitney Houston? They're not rock artists. Mm-hmm. It's nice to see it's nice to see like people of all backgrounds who actually know that rock goes back to rock and roll, which goes back to blues, which goes back to like black uh-huh. folks in America creating uh-huh. The things that create the foundation of American pop music, as well as global hip hop culture.
3: Right.
0: So, looking at T. Rex, the Notorious B. I. G., Nine Inch Nails, Whitney Houston, the Doobie Brothers, the Pesh, yeah, the Pesh Mode. Yep. I am, you know, incredibly liberal. I think when it comes to the Notorious B. I. G. There's some people that I actually saw on Twitter and Facebook today going, oh, he only has two albums. Oh, it's too soon. And oh, there's so many (laughs) other MCs that blah, 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 blah. And my thing was, what you gonna do? Wait for him to come back from the dead and make another release? Come on, man. This is a notorious B.I.G. He's got a catalog that burned so bright in such a short amount of time that, as far as I'm concerned, they could have put they could have been put him in there because when wow. an artist has a situation where they become bigger than life, this man is not just looked upon with um, some type of uh, emotion just because he died. When he was mm-hmm. here, he changed the game. Period. Oh. I, I'll go out on a limb and say when he was here, he created a way. he 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 lifted everything he lifted all things puff daddy and all things new york at a time when hip-hop culture had spread to the south and the west he let folks know that new york was in the game still he let folks know where hip-hop came from and i say this as a proud you know, resident of a of a far off, you know, exotic land called Oakland, California. Notorious B.I.G. Notorious B.I.G. Let New York it, it, it let it be known and never forgotten that hip hop started in New York, and that that he was one of its premier kings. And I feel that his voice, the tone, the cadence, the storytelling, everything about the emotions that music creates in fans, this man was able to do with his voice. that doesn't take away from the fact that a drummer with amazing pocket you know deserves a special place in our hearts and mind or an amazing guitar player that can pick up the same guitar that somebody else sounded shitty playing and make it sound like God himself. Mm -hmm. Those are all different. Those are, those are all different arts, but you got to think there's something very special about a man that can put some words together that rhyme, tell a story and create, um, and create emotion and representation for people that are otherwise marginalized. Notorious Mm -hmm. B.I.G. Rest in peace. Bam.
1: Wow! There it is. Well, uh I'm old enough, uh <laughs> Mr. David Mitchell. I'm going to let you chime in on that because that is absolutely fascinating. I'm old enough to remember a singer by the name of janice Joplin, and mm-hmm. I know that she was also inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But after she passed away, much like in the case with the notorious Big, guess I mean and I, also Tupac. I, and, and, we
0: and don't t- forget, Tupac's are there, there too.
1: Absolutely, and so. Janice Joplin, David Mitchell, only released three mm-hmm. albums in her career. Okay, so I'm interested in the, the 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 naysayers who may have a feeling either way about the, the validity of this nomination of notorious B.I.G. Uh, have y'all ever heard of Janice Joplin and her three albums? Oh, okay.
2: absolutely. Absolutely. Mitchell, are you are kidding? Thoughts? <laughs> yeah, come on. But, but the interesting thing about janice and especially with her being kind of a member of that not kind of but being a member of the quote-unquote 27 club you know yeah. she was a rock artist i'm kind of divided upon the whole thing and, and you know my and as a black male african-american male and um you know I, i'm i'm not young i'm young at heart but i'm i'm just gonna say i'm i'm older I've been around since the 80s as far as the music business goes. And I'm probably a little bit more divided or split on my opinion on all of this. On There's one aspect I'm like, look, that's their organization. They're going to vote for whoever they want to. I'm kind of the same way with the Grammys. And it's so funny because I just did an article uh, that just posted on the uh, MIQ site. Uh, MIQ MAG, uh, Music Industry Quarterly, and it was with Lynn Brown. And Lynn is the project manager for the Grammys. And so he handles all the uh, urban oriented stuff. And that was one of the things that we talked about, you know, no matter what you do in hip hop, R&B, reggae, which are the categories he oversees, it's just not going to please everybody. And we have this, you know, we have this thing called social media today, which we didn't really have just barely 10 years ago. And now Everybody weighs in, Mm
6: -hmm. you know, and it's
2: (laughs) just. And one of the things that we're talking about with the Grammys this year, especially in the rap categories, is that it didn't have the traditional A-listers. I know we're talking Rock Hall of Fame, but just to bring in the the Grammys for a minute, you know, you don't see the typical Drake, Jay-Z, Eminem, Kanye West two or three of those guys did have albums this year, but didn't get nominated. So it tells you that it's getting younger. You're getting people that are supporting that, which is next, which is the new thing. But now you've also pissed off some of the older people, you right. know, and it's the same thing. Uh, you've got younger uh, uh, artists in today, like uh, Lizzo and lucky day, you know, that people may not be yes. that familiar with. And, you know, so you've picked off another branch of, viewers and the fan base you know why wasn't the the last Beyonce record in there you know so you just can't please everybody and the same thing with and at least with the Grammys they've got 84 categories you know here with the Rock Hall of Fame you're picking five people a year. Usually their final nominees are about, what, 10 people, I think, were were named, And poor Shaka Khan, I mean, she keeps, her name keeps coming up numerous times, but she never gets in. I mean, she's almost like the Susan Lucci of the, of the uh, uh, Rock Hall of Fame. Mm -hmm. But, uh, Mm -hmm. I I don't know. I just, I just don't think think everybody.
0: (laughs) My only request is that when Shaka does, get in is that they they do it while she's still alive so she can play drums at the induction. Okay.
1: There you go. I I I, I a lot of <laughs> love that. Hey, she got some chops <laughs> on them drums, right? I mean, yeah. I don't know how many people And know most that.
2: people don't know she's a drummer.
1: Absolutely. But
2: the interesting but the interesting thing about the Rock uh, uh, Hall of Fame, unlike watching the Kennedy Centers, with the Rock, it doesn't matter whether you are alive or dead. They will still, you know, induct you. Mm. uh you'd like to try to get people while they're still here though so Mm. but uh they said there was an article that came out today that the uh president of the rock hall of fame thought that there's an opportunity here in doing a lot of these posthumous uh awards i don't know really what the opportunities are (laughs) you know but you're getting other people to come up and perform and you know, the families are there. I I, I don't know, but it's it's something that seems to be happening quite often. Absolutely. Well,
0: wouldn't you guys think that they would separate the posthumous awards so that you could actually have people, you know, that you could make room for a Shaka who's still here, you know, make room for an LL who's still here and have the posthumous awards. Uh, uh, I wouldn't say as It's not a separate category, but Mm -hmm. but have a bigger pool so that you know we could benefit by giving people the flowers while they're here to smell them.
1: Well, what I wouldn't have a problem with that because I think there are levels to honorees, and not in terms of ability and Mm -hmm. or impact. I think it's just in order to properly appreciate and be able to understand their context in history. For example, what I'm talking about is remember how people were fretting and moaning some people anyway, when uh, former president, Barack Obama, got the, uh, the Nobel peace prize in his, uh, the second mm-hmm. year, of his first term. Now some people had no issue with that and others were like, well, he hasn't done enough. He hasn't done this. He hasn't done that. Uh, there goes the uh, Nobel peace prize. If he can get it, then anybody can get it. I, of course, I didn't agree with that because I I was very inspired by the inception of his uh, run uh, during his Mm -hmm. presidency. And now, you know, ironically, the time person of the year, he was tied with somebody who I I won't name, uh, number 45. And then people, of course, on the other side start thinking, okay, now they're just giving away awards. But when you think about what Juliana just said, David, in terms of if they had a criteria for people who are alive still and give them heartbeat props, like the great shock G of Oakland, shout out for Oakland and Juliana. What if they did sort of have a hip hop hall of fame? What if they had Mm -hmm. um, a hall of fame for soul music artists? So people like Rufus and Shaka. I mean, I like Shaka when she was with Rufus. (laughs) I love Shaka, but I don't think she was ever better. And you know, this is debatable, but her days with Rufus, oh my God. Never
2: better. Well, I like both iterations of Shaka, but I see, I think you're onto something and I never even quite thought of it like that too, but then that would kind of liken the uh, rock to uh, again, to what the Grammys are kind of doing because they call it the rock and roll hall of fame. And I'm one of those people that questions, well, what is, is it, are we just looking at rock music are we looking at rock edge artists are we looking at rock and roll as like this general term that just really dis- uh, describes an entire culture of popular music and how it's evolved let's say basically over the last 50 to 60 years mm-hmm. what is the
1: criteria then i mean because david was kind of breaking down the process of the induction whole thing but I remember when the Dells, the great singing group, the Dells, who for years, in fact, the, the movie The Five Heartbeats was inspired by them. The great Robert Townsend mm-hmm. uh, based his movie on them. And for years they were ignored. I think groups such as the, even the Manhattans and the Lights may have at least gotten an, an, an acknowledgement. But for the longest time, the legendary Dells, and I think they were on Chess Records out of Chicago, I think. They never got in, but when they finally did, one of their singers kind (laughs) of gave uh, the industry, they were on stage giving their uh, thank you speech, and they were like, man, we finally got in. We should have been in a long time ago. And so when you think about that, and when you think about the criteria that is really not clearly defined, uh, how valid are the concerns or the complaints about the people that really have these really abbreviated careers, but yet somebody felt for whatever reason, political reasons, well, you have, appreciation, of well, what's the criteria? Well, you have the heavy
2: metal community right now that's like, Absolutely. well, look, if this is a rock and roll hall of fame. Right. How come these metal bands aren't getting in? You know, right. it seems like there's been a long uh, uh, uh void of, of of getting those guys in. I think what the Hall could probably do better, which is something I think the Grammys does well, mm-hmm. but it's whether or not people seem to pick up on it, is that they explain their process. You gotta explain your process,
5: who's behind
2: it. And they've also got to tell you what the categories or a certain category means. What right. does rock and roll mean? Mm-hmm. Because to like what uh to Juliana's point earlier, most people think it's, you know, white boys with long hair, playing guitar, folk, or electronic bass music. And, you know, you mentioned a lot of pioneer Black artists, you know, whether it's a Knight Turner or a Chuck Berry, a Bo Diddley, a Lil Richard, they were doing the same thing. They were pioneers of this music. And a lot of those guys, in fact, pretty much all of them in the beginning were recognized uh, in the 80s. But by then, most of those guys had already had 40, 50-year careers and were starting to die off. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think they could do a much better job of explaining what the categories are, how people can get in, what they're looking to award and honor. And you'll still have half the population that's still going to, you know, bitch and oh, complain. But what, what can you do? You know?
1: well, Yeah, you can't please them all. But um, I think that would help a lot, David. And Julianne, I want to get your thoughts on what David just said, too, because I think it would help to give people a a little bit more of appreciation for the process and the fact that there was some thought put into the particular nominees as they stand, you know, at issue. Because right now, it looks like it's anything goes. We haven't said anything yet about Whitney Houston. Uh, what concerns exist possibly about the induction of Whitney Houston? Who would possibly have an issue with that?
2: Listen. Well, actually, I, I, I mean, Michael like Ray, real quick, since you mentioned yeah. Whitney, listen, Whitney yeah. oh, is cool. probably, arguably, one of my favorite hey, singers in the world i love whitney but i wasn't even i was really ambivalent about her even being in the hall let alone her getting a nomination this year i thought pat benatar who predated whitney who actually was a rock singer Mm -hmm. uh rock musician i thought she should have gotten in years ago that you know but i'm i'm glad for whitney and her family Mm -hmm. but uh and I and I've seen some pretty uh, uh mean things said about Whitney over the last couple of days mm. on social media. You know, people talking about she's not rock, and the only thing she's ever done that was rock was you know her drug situation. And I'm being very nice, and some of the stuff right. that I've read, mm. uh, you know, I I just I, I think you know that it's very disheartening. But that's kind of I was kind of ambivalent about her situation
6: mm.
1: because of but pandemic. Juliana's is definitely.
2: Well, well, no, because I mean, I like was Whitney. Whitney really a rocker? No, she wasn't. But like I said, I've been divided about the whole thing because I do believe if if that's what we're going for, that this is a broader outreach of music. And it's various forms of popular culture. Then she definitely should be in there. And there's people prior to her. I mean, I'm watching the Tamron Hall show today, and I forget the journalist's name that was on there. He mentioned, "Why isn't Barbara Streisand in there?" And I'm like, "Wow, that interesting me, point." Yeah, yeah.
0: Well, you
3: know.
2: if, if
0: we if, if we might go back a moment, I will say I'll definitely say considering it, it would the the crime is that. The crime is that Madonna is in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame before Pat Benatar, so as not to put the onus on Janet Jackson, (laughs) Whitney Houston. So Madonna was inducted into the Hall of Fame in 2008. And then, you know, some years after that, you know, in in a sea of artists that does not include a whole lot of women to begin with, Laura Mm -hmm. Nero, Hart, Donna Summer, Linda Rostadt. Uh, Joan Jett. And it, 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 seriously, they, if Joan Baez just makes it in in 2017. It, it does make you scratch your head and say, mm-hmm. wait, 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 what's this process? Because there's no way that I would have thought that Pat Benatar was not already in the rock hall. David just set me back just now. And I'm, I'm like, that, that's, that's yeah. that is a crime. Well, Linda just got
2: in a couple of years ago, too. Well, well,
0: Stevie Nixon, and Janet Jackson, 2019 inductees. And, you know, I definitely want to say the people, the people at the Rock Hall that administer this huge process are some of the most incredible minds, very nice, hardworking people. And our concerns are in no way to disparage them. I want to shout out to uh, Karen Herman, who is at the Rock Hall right now, uh, who I came up with working on the Primetime Emmy Awards at some uh, point in our earlier careers. They do a tremendous job. And I can't imagine what they must go through in the eye of this storm, much like your friends on, uh, at, at, at the Grammy building, David. Could you imagine being the steward of this stuff and having to take people from complaints? <laughs>
1: mm. But uh, this is KCWG, thetruth.com. Program's called Psychotic Bump School. I'm DJ Rome, and we're just having a fun conversation tonight about the recent Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductees for 2020, and we're joined tonight by the incredible, incomparable Juliana Bowden from Black Tree TV and my good brother, Mr. David Mitchell from Music Industry Quarterly. Well, um, I am so glad y'all pivoted the discussion to who's not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. We've had a pretty nuanced chat tonight uh, on... I'll just kind of just gather in and tie a bow around this if I can, because it sounds like, especially with the names that Juliana just mentioned, David, that it is Mm kind of wide open. And I think there's something about when a a nominee kind of breaks the mode, at some point somebody's gonna sort of break with convention or break with tradition and sort of nominate and actually uh, get all the way through to the top, someone that people would not generally associate with this type of uh, acknowledgement. And when you were talking about movies and Oscars so white a few minutes ago, you made me think about that year when, um, was it 3-6 Mafia when they, they won an Oscar for- um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, talk it's about breaking a bowl. It don't get no yeah. more broke than that. <laughs> David is right the more that they can sort of crystallize the process and educate the fans and the people that love these artists who might feel a certain kind of way or, or a certain kind of slighted when they're their favorite artists that's close to their heart and you got their records in your record collection and you grew up watching the Doobie Brothers on What's Happening when the record player or tape recorder falls out of reruns trench coat and <laughs> you got Jim Baxter pointing on the floor. You guys are bootlegging us. It's like, no matter what <laughs> side you're on, <laughs> you're going to feel a certain kind yeah. of way. But, um, wow, thank you so much for being here, both of you. Uh, this has been a great thank conversation. Thank you. And uh, I like uh, have you definitely come back sometime. Uh, before. I- <music>